Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you unsure whether to use one wide tenon or multiple smaller tenons in a wide table apron? Do you need to know how to make applied cock beading with hand tools? Should you put your workbench against a wall or right in the center of your shop? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 20 of the show for February 23rd, 2018. I am uh, a couple days late this week because I was traveling for business earlier in the week. So I apologize for uh, not getting the show out on the regular Wednesday, but uh, I wasn't around earlier in the week to record. So uh, there you have it. But uh, before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank all of the folks who support the show over on Patreon, including Bill Elliott, Arcadius Tchaikovsky, Bill Warnock, Krister K., Lawrence Polinski, Jeff Skiles, Joe Delorier, Jens Rosendahl, Matt McGrain, Jared Tolan, Chris Barnes, Christopher Bush, Lance Stutchel, John Schuster, Steve Daneman, Kyle Groff, and Cupressus Saratina. Thank you, everyone, for your generous support of the show. And if you would like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So I received uh, some feedback from Joe Leonetti on uh, episode 18 where I talked about using nails and furniture. So let's start the show off today by listening to what Joe had to say. Hi, Bob. This is Joe Leonetti from Livermore, California. Uh, thank you for your recent show where you discussed uh, nails in detail. Really appreciated the information. Um, as a beginning woodworker, I'm looking for topics that dive deep, and this was a good one. Uh, two questions. Number one, do you think you could post um, a list of the common nails uh, that you recommended keeping in the shop? Um, I certainly don't mind listening to the whole podcast again, but it might be nice to have uh, just sort of a handy list I could go to to uh, pick up the nails. And uh, number two, do you think it would be possible to do a similar show talking about screws we use in woodworking? Um, that's something I'd like to learn more about as well. Okay. Have a uh, wonderful time and keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye-bye. So thank you, Joe, for that uh, voicemail. And uh, I, I definitely will put together that list of common nails and screws. Um, I think by this time, you've probably already listened to episode 19, which uh, was the follow-up to 18. So in 18, I talked about nails. And then in 19, the, the last episode, I did go and talk about screws. So um, that probably answered that question for you. But I will go ahead and put together a blog post uh, for the website, which has a list of the, the nails that I keep on hand. Um, in terms of screws, uh, I'll talk about it more in the blog post, but I don't really tend to keep stock of too many screws because I don't use them all that often other than for attaching hardware. Um, so in the rare case that I do need to buy some screws, I usually um, just buy them for the, the need at hand. But uh, I'll go ahead and, and put that list together. Look for that uh, probably next week, the, uh, the week of February, I guess it would be 25th or 26th. Somewhere uh, 
sometime next week, I should have that, uh, that blog post up on the website with that list of nails that I usually keep on hand. So let's get into our questions for this week. The first one comes from Matt McGrain. Matt says, I have a question about cross grain problems when you mate a wide apron to a leg. I've seen people use double tenons in this instance, but I fail to see why this helps in any way. You're still gluing a wide run of tenon into a mortise and the apron won't be able to move with seasonal changes. Why on earth would a double tenon help in this case? So Matt, there's, there's actually a couple things going on here when you see this. So, um, just for, for visualization, let's, let's picture a, a low boy or a dressing table where you might have, you know, you've got four legs and the side aprons in the back apron might be 12 to somewhere between 12 and 18 inches wide. Uh, typically what you will see are multiple mortises and multiple tenons, probably around three mortises, um, and three mating tenons in the aprons in a piece that wide. So there's a couple reasons for doing this. First, what you're going to find is that when, when, when we do this in a, with a wide apron like that, most people, and I, and I say most, cause I, I know of at least one who uh, has said a professional who has said that he just glues it all up and doesn't worry about it. But most people, um, when they make these wide aprons like this will only glue a portion of it. So for instance, you might glue the bottom where it meets. If, if it's a period type piece, the bottom of that apron might meet up with a knee block and you don't want to have a, a gap opening up at that point. So you might, um, find that you would glue it at the bottom and then the top two tenons, you would just let them float. You might draw bore them without any glue and elongate the draw bore holes so that that wide apron still has the uh, opportunity to expand and contract seasonally. But there's a little bit more going on here. What you're going to find is that you, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you don't usually have just one wide tenon. It's usually broken up into about three tenons. Now, sometimes those tenons might have a small web of material uh, connecting them, sort of like a little short stub tenon. And sometimes it's just three distinct tenons. The the reason for this is to to preserve strength in the leg. So if you were to just make, let's say you're making that low boy and you've got a, a leg block where the mortises are, are bored, that's about, you know, an inch and a half square. Now, if you go and you bore one inch deep to one and a quarter inch deep, put a, uh, make one and a quarter inch deep mortise in that leg stock, one, one to one and a quarter inches deep, and you make that mortise the full width of the apron. Let's say you've got an 18 inch apron. So maybe you come in a half inch on either side and you've got a 17 inch tenon. What's happening is you're taking an awful lot of material out of that 18 inch wide leg and you're really weakening that leg by splitting that tenon up into three or four distinct separate tenons and chopping three or four mortises instead of one long mortise that you're leaving some extra wood inside that leg and you're making that leg stronger by doing so. So that's one of the reasons is to preserve strength. Um, as you mentioned earlier, wood movement is another one. So that way you can just glue one of the tenons and leave the other ones floating. Um, as I mentioned, I, I do know of at least one person who just glues up the whole thing and doesn't worry about wood movement. And um, he says he has never experienced any problems with that. So 
Um, you know, that's his prerogative. He's a professional and, you know, he's been doing this for a good many years, so I don't doubt him. Um, when I make tenons like that, I do usually split it up into about three, um, and just glue one of them, um, and let the others float. Um, and just, you know, use a, a draw bore with a peg to hold them in place without any glue. Um, but I do, you know, do that to, um, preserve strength in the leg first off and second to allow for that wood movement. So I hope that answers your question sufficiently. So our next question comes from Scott Adams. Scott says concerning bead moldings, I know with power tools, you would make your bead molding and then rip them off on the table saw. How would you accomplish that with hand tools or would you go about it that way? What tooth rip saw would you use? And would you plane the backside of the molding after sawing it off? So, yeah, you can, you can certainly do that. If you're making a, an applied cock beading, for example, you might want to use say a side bead plane and go ahead and make that molding first. And then after the molding is made, use a marking gauge to mark your cut line and then take your rip saw, whatever rip saw you've got, really, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, in terms of, of points per inch, you know, my rip saw, my long rip saw, um, does the job just fine. I only have a, a single five and a half point rip saw. I don't use more rip saws than that other than my tenon saw, which has a back on it, um, and really wouldn't work well in this case. So yeah, I would just use the rip saw, whatever rip saw you've got and rip that bead molding off and then go ahead and plane it to clean it up after plane the, uh, the saw side to clean it up afterwards and uh, get it to the thickness that it needs to be before you go ahead and miter it and apply that beading. Um, another way that you might do it would be to, instead of using an applied cock beading, you might put that molding directly on the piece instead so that it's integral to the parts instead of applied after the fact. Where you might see this might be in like a chest of drawers where what will often happen is the the maker would have put a bead onto the case sides, for example. Then when the drawer blades were made, they put a bead on the drawer blades. Then when the, the sliding dovetail was cut on those drawer blades to um, put those drawer blades into the chest of drawers, into the, the, uh, the case frame, uh, often what they would do would be to miter the beading on the case. So you would have to kind of notch out where you're cutting the dovetail notch for the sliding dovetail. Um, and you would miter that beading on the case at that joint. And then you would also miter the beading on the drawer blade. So instead of having an applied cock bead, it would just be integral so that you wouldn't have to worry about ripping it off and applying it afterwards. Uh, and that was pretty common on, uh, on a lot of period furniture as well. So, so yeah, you can do it both ways. You can, you can make the bead integral to the piece that you're working on and, and just work with it that way, or you can, uh, make the bead and rip it off and, uh, and apply it like you might say on a, on a drawer front. Uh, they both work pretty much, uh, same way that you would do it with, uh, with power tools other than having to hand plane the, the backside of that bead molding after you rip it off. So our next question comes from Scott Ilya and Scott says my current shop setup has my main workbench against a wall, which also is the wall that has the only window in the shop. I do like the natural light that comes in, but I do find that I'm limited to accessibility to the bench since it's against the wall. 
I'm leaning towards moving the bench to the middle of the shop so I have access from all sides. Uh, in watching your podcast videos from your shop in New Jersey, I know you had your bench against the wall, which was probably due to the size of your shop. In your current shop, do you have your workbench in the middle of your shop? Or do you have a particular preference? So at the moment, my workbench is actually still against the wall. Um, again, underneath the, I have two windows in my current shop. They're quite small, uh, much smaller than the window in my old shop. But I do have two windows in my current shop. Um, and I put the workbench under the north-facing window because the uh, I find that the light is more consistent coming from the, the north window as opposed to the south window, which would get direct super bright sunlight beaming in in the morning and then um, later in the evening when the sun moves to the other um, the other end of the shop. It's just, you know, it, it, you get kind of shadows. Um, the north-facing window seems to have more consistent light throughout the day. So I do have it under under a window against a wall. Um, I don't find that to be a disadvantage. And in fact, I kind of prefer it um, against a wall under, under a window like that, under a north-facing window. Um, where I do find having the bench out in the middle of the shop to be an advantage is when filming, uh, if, you're, if you're doing video. Because uh, it becomes difficult to line up a camera when you're uh, working up against a wall. When I'm writing articles too, um, sometimes I'll have to pull the bench out just to get the uh, a good angle, um, you know, of whatever it is that I'm I'm trying to shoot photos for the article. So um, I don't find having the workbench out in the middle of the room to really have an advantage over having it against a wall. Um, in fact, I think it it's sort of a disadvantage because. The bench takes up more floor space that way and kind of gets in the way of, of other things. If you want to pull a, a saw bench around or a shaving horse or something like that, um, the main workbench kind of gets in the way when it's in the middle of the room. Um, as well as, you know, I, I pretty much never go to the other side of the bench. I really haven't found um, a need to have the workbench away from the wall for working purposes. Um, really, every time that I've pulled the workbench away from the wall. It's more for photographic reasons than anything else. So, um, you know, I would say leave it against the wall if you're, if you're not having a problem. Um, if you feel like you're limited because you're against a wall um, and you really find that there are a lot of situations where you need to get to the other side of the bench, by all means, you know, move it out to the center of the room, move it out away from the wall and, uh, and see how it works for you. Um, I haven't found a real need uh, I haven't found that that I am at any kind of disadvantage by having the bench against the wall. So I've got used to working that way, and that, that would be my preference. So our last question comes from Jeremy Conrad. Jeremy asks, have you ever edge-jointed eight-quarter red oak? I got a request from a family member to make two oak tabletops for him to attach metal legs to. I quickly said I'd do it because I didn't think it'd be too difficult only hearing afterward that he wanted two inch thick red oak, six foot long by 26 inches wide. It's a long edge joint to make an eight quarter oak. And it has me wondering if I should tell him I can't do it. I use my number seven joiner for jointing and a lunchbox planer for surface planing. Do you have any tips? Should I go buy the wood and give it a try? Or should I try to find someone with a power joiner? So, uh, Jeremy, there's really no reason why edge joining eight quarter material 
with your number seven should be any different than jointing uh, four quarter material if you, that's what you're used to working with. You know, eight quarter material is still going to be narrower than the width of your plane iron. What you may find is that you have to take um, a finer cut because you're removing more wood at a time. So you might have to take lighter shavings um, and take your time and work a little bit slower just because you have to take thinner cuts. Um, but really, you know, I say go for it. There's really no reason um, to treat that eight quarter board any different than a four quarter board. Um, you know, like I said, your, your number seven's got a, a blade that's, I believe, somewhere in the neighborhood of two and three eighths or, or two and a half inches wide. Um, eight quarter material is only going to be two inches wide, probably even a little bit less after you surface plane that material. So um, there's no reason, you know, that that you can't do that with your your number seven joiner and six feet long, six feet long really isn't all that bad. Um, I've edge jointed material, um, eight and 10 feet long with a number seven and, uh, and it came out just fine. So six feet long is, is really should not be any problem at all. So I would go ahead and get at it, you know, just make sure your iron sharp. Probably, like I said, you'll probably have to take finer cuts, um, and thinner shavings just because one, it's red Oak and two, it's two inches wide, um, but you should be just fine. So I say, go ahead and do it. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to me at b- bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can leave a, a voicemail just, uh, just like Joe did uh, at 276-601-3123. Or you can also go to brfindwoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic was suggested actually by uh, two listeners, uh, Ben Ice and Premodern Bloke. Uh, they both had similar questions about tools, different tools. So let me just read the two questions to set the tone. Uh, ben Ice said, I write because I would like to hear your you discuss the topic of wooden bench planes. I recently built a Krenov style plane using a hawk blade, which I love. I use only hand tools and this plane is one of my favorite tools. I like its weight and the connection it gives me to the work. I have also tinkered around with other wooden body planes with metal body planes and with Japanese style planes and trying to arrive at the best hand plane experience possible. I keep coming to the same question. How closely related are Western wooden planes, such as the Krenov style and Japanese planes? Furthermore, is there any combination of Western and Eastern that actually gives us the best of both worlds? I regularly pull my Krenov style plane as if it were a Japanese style plane and it functions perfectly. Yet one plane is designed with the mouth in front in the front half of the plane while the other has the mouth in the rear half of the plane. The other notable difference between Western planes and Eastern planes is the composition of the blade. Does the composition of the blade have any material effect on the cutting on the cutting or the quality of the surface? Or does it simply reflect that the two blades that while different perform the exact same function? One day, if I have time, I might build a Krenov style plane with the mouth at the rear just to see how it functions. I feel like this particular rabbit hole could occupy me for quite a while. However, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic as they might answer some of my questions and inform some of my future projects. So uh, Ben wants to know about wooden planes. So, and then let me read uh, Ben Premodern Bloke's question. He says, 
Can you discuss different choices and tools and the pros and cons of each? For example, wooden planes versus iron planes, chisel types, i.e. tang, socket, bolster, Japanese, uh, new tools versus old tools. I noticed that you've been using uh, Stanley metal planes and Lee Nielsen chisels in more recent pictures on your blog. At one point, I remember you using and then selling a set of Ashley Isles chisels, and then you had and then you had built up a set of firmer chisels in their place. Also, you used to use wooden body planes, and it looks like you're now using iron ones. Perhaps I missed it in a podcast, but you could you share why you have made those changes? Okay. So I can't cover all of the different tools in one show or we'll be here all day. So today I'm just going to focus on the wooden planes versus iron planes question. And we'll, we'll get to the the chisels in another show. Um, So we'll talk wooden planes versus iron planes. Um, Now let's first kind of look at the wooden planes, right? Because wooden planes are really the the oldest form of the tool. Um, We've seen examples that go back to, um, you know, Roman times, uh, BC with Roman planes, um, with wooden planes, you know, a wooden body with, uh, with an iron blade. Um, uh, and it's, they've been around a long, long, long time. Um, there are several different styles that you'll find the, the style with the cross pen, the cross pin that was, um, popularized by James Krenoff that Ben talked about in his question, um, tends to be a more modern style. Although, um, we do see some older planes that have those pins as well. Um, but wooden planes can also have sawn abutments where the, that way the center of the plane is kind of left kind of open, um, more room to get your fingers in more room for shavings to escape, um, where, the, you know, so the, the wedge abutments are sawn into the sides of the plane so that there's no cross pin, which leaves you more room in the throat. That's the type of plane that wooden plane that I prefer. Um, because they are more traditional for the work that I do. Um, and also because there's more room for the shavings to get out and that pin doesn't really get in the way. Um, but the Japanese planes are also typically wooden as well. Um, they are similar in terms of, of the blade being held in place by sawn abutments on the side of the plane. However, Japanese planes don't use a wedge. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the blades of the different style planes in a few minutes, but the way Japanese planes works, the, the blade itself acts as its own wedge and and wedges itself into, um, the sawn abutments in the sides of the plane. Whereas with a Western style plane, there is a separate wooden wedge that holds the blade in place. So, um, in turn, uh, there was actually uh, what I do want to mention, um, because Ben asked if, um, if there, you know, was there a real notable difference between Western and Eastern planes? Um, and I will say that in, in my experience, they're more similar than they are different. And I actually did an article several years ago, um, for popular woodworking with, I co-authored it with my, my really good friend, Wilbur Pan, um, who is a, an expert on Japanese tools. And we did a lot of, of looking at and comparing Japanese wooden planes with, Western wooden planes. And there was some, a lot, a lot of cool stuff that, that came out of that, um, that, uh, that discussion and that article. So, um, I will, um, I, I have that article in PDF form. So I'll, I'll actually post that article on 
the website in the show notes in case anybody's interested in reading that article. But, um, you know, Wilbur and I both pretty much determined that there's a lot more similarities between Western and Japanese wooden planes than there are differences. And, uh, you know, a lot of books and magazines like to focus on the differences, but, um, you know, for the most part, I think they're, they're much more similar than they are different. Um, in terms of iron planes, you know, they're not exactly new. They've been around since, uh, at least, you know, the, the early, the late part of the 18th, early part of the 19th century. Uh, we see, we start to see some metal bodied planes. Um, there are several different styles of those as well. The older style being the infill where there is a cast or, um, dovetailed metal body. So that the metal body itself can either be cast in one piece, um, or in some cases it was metal plate that was dovetailed. The sides were dovetailed to the bottom, and, and the metal was peened, peened or hammered to lock everything in place, and then filed. Um, so those are two different ways that infills were made, and the infill part is the the wood that is cut and very very carefully and precisely fit to the inside of that metal casting and the infill infilled wood creates the, the bed that the iron seats against and uh, creates that bed angle. The Bailey style planes came around uh, a little bit later in the 19th century and they really made iron planes affordable to the common working man because infill planes, let's face it, they're, they're beautiful. Uh, extremely functional, but they require a lot of precision handwork from a very skilled plane maker in order to make them. Bailey planes, when when Leonard Bailey uh, patented and came up with the design, they were really designed to um, to be able to make castings, bolt those castings together, um, and just really bolt everything and and eliminate all the precision fitting of the wooden infills and therefore make iron planes um, easy to mass manufacture and make them more affordable to the common man, the common working man. So let's talk a little bit about the pros and cons of the different styles. So we'll start with the bodies. Um, If we go and we, we look at the traditional wooden planes, the traditional wedge abutment style. They are almost always made from a single block, single solid piece of wood. And the the mortise and the wedge abutments and the bed and everything are chiseled from a, that single block. Japanese planes, pretty much the same thing. The geometry of the bed and the wedge abutments are slightly different again. And that's really due mostly to the way Japanese blades are set up, but other, and the fact that Japanese planes don't use a wedge, but other than that, the construction process is almost identical. You have, you know, a a solid wooden block and the throat and the mouth and the wedge abutments, everything is chiseled out of a solid block. This means that these planes are, are quite labor intensive and take quite a, a good bit of skill to to make. The Krenov style planes, on the other hand, 
Um, they were designed to be much simpler to make. They're made from three pieces of wood where you can saw the the front half or the the, the um, we'll call it the throat side of the plane, the, where the throat and the wear are. The bed side of the plane also can be sawn. And then the two sides of the plane are then glued on after the fact. Um, and the pin is also added um, separately. So instead of being a single block of wood plus a wedge, you have five different pieces of wood plus a wedge going together, and it, it's all put together with glue. The disadvantage of the Krenov style planes is that um, depending on what time, type of glue you use, they can be subject to glue creep over time. Um, you know, I haven't experienced it in the ones that I've used um, personally, so I can't vouch for it. Um, it glue creep is is a known thing. Um, it's not a myth. It does exist um, in in PVA glues. So if you want to avoid it, you know, you just use glues that don't tend to creep like, uh, like hide glue. Um, and, um, I, there was another one there's another type of plat, like a plastic resin glue or something like that. Uh, polyurethane glue also, I believe doesn't creep. Um, but PVA glue, uh, I believe has a tendency or, or possibility at least to creep over time. Again, I've never experienced uh, it being a problem in the Krenov style planes that I've used, but I haven't used that many of them. Um, I, I have heard of other folks who, who have had some issues and had to retune the plane because of mild glue creep over time, but um, I don't know how real of an issue it is. Um, but the you know the fact that they're made from several different pieces of wood and then and that you can saw accurately saw the bed angle and saw the throat side um, and that there's very little chisel work involved in those planes it makes them much easier to build than the traditional wooden plane or the traditional Japanese plane um, does it make them any less functional no um, they work just as well um, as a a traditionally made plane um, it's just a different method of construction. So, um, other than, you know, other than that, there's really no, no big difference between them. Um, you know, when we look at bodies of, of the different planes, iron is obviously going to be more stable. Um, it will move, especially the, um, the cast iron that was used by Stanley that iron will move over time. It may take 30 to 40 years for that iron to move and the stresses to, to be relieved. Um, and that plane to need to be reflattened and retuned, but that iron will move. Um, the new cast ductile iron used by companies like Lee Nielsen is less likely. There are less stresses, but it will still move, um, over a long period of time. So, um, you know, it, it will move, but it doesn't move as much and it doesn't move as quickly as wood, which tends to move much more. Um, it will move seasonally and, and sometimes it can move even, excuse me, um, you know, between seasons. So it can move several times a year, depending on your location and your uh, typical temperature and humidity. But the difference is, Wooden planes, when they do move, are much easier to correct because, hey, it's wood. You can plane it, you can sand it, you can do lots of things to, to correct that out of flatness. With a metal-bodied plane, it is, takes much more time to make that correction. 
Um, weight is another factor. Wood is going to be lighter. A wooden plane is going to be lighter for any given size. Um, and this is a good thing for planes like a four plane um, or maybe even a joiner plane where if you're taking heavy shavings and doing a lot of work on rough lumber, that lighter weight is going to be much less tiring to use over a long period of time. So uh, the, the lighter weight is a bonus. Um, iron is going to be heavier in just about every size. You compare a, an iron smoother to a wooden smoother, the iron is heavier. An iron jack plane to a wooden jack plane, the iron is heavier. So um, for pretty much every size, the iron plane is going to be heavier. Now, some people, though, will prefer the extra weight of the iron plane, especially in planes like smoothers and shooting planes, um, and especially when you're working in difficult grains. Some people just really prefer that extra weight of the iron. So in those cases, the extra weight may be a benefit to you. Now, what about mouth adjustment? Well, in an iron plane, the mouth is very easy to adjust. You just simply move the frog. Um, in a bedrock-style plane, or you know the, the planes that are made by Lee Nielsen, which you don't even, um, which are based on bedrocks, you don't even have to, to take off the iron in the cap iron or, or the lever cap in order to make that adjustment. You can actually adjust the mouth and move the frog with the blade and everything clamped tightly in place. In the Bailey style, you do have to remove the blade and the um, the chip breaker and and you know disassemble that in order to get to the screws to loosen up the frog, but it's still not that big of a deal. You loosen the screws, you slide the frog forward, and you put it, you know, tighten the screws back up. Um, and I have a video on uh, an easy way to make that adjustment in a, uh, in a Bailey-style plane, and I'll post a, a link to that YouTube video in the show notes in case you're, you're interested in tightening up the mouth of, uh, of one of your iron planes. In a wooden plane, whether it's a Krenov style or Japanese style or a traditional Western style, um, the only way to tighten up that mouth is to chisel and, and glue in a mouth patch. Um, and let's face it, in a wooden plane, that mouth is going to wear over time. Um, it, I have found in my wooden planes that the mouth tends to widen more from maintenance than it does from actual wear of the plane sole itself. Um, and that's because, you know, wooden planes typically have to be tuned and adjusted several times a year. You're going to have to reflatten soles. Um, and every time you reflatten, you're removing material from the sole and you're making the mouth wider. Um, and that's just the nature of these things, um, because of, of the movement issues. So, um, but a wooden mouth is going to get wider over time as the sole wears and as it's reflattened, um, and, the mouth will get wider. So, and the only way to, to patch, to, uh, close that back up again is to add a, a mouth patch, um, which isn't a huge deal, but, uh, you know, it turns some folks off. They don't want to be bothered with that. And what about blade adjustment? So this, there's a little bit of controversy over this. So mechanical adjusters and iron planes, the, the screws, uh, the screw feed mechanism, whether you're talking about a Bailey style or um, the more modern, well, not really more modern, but the style used by Lee Valley planes, the Norris style adjuster, um, both are based on screw threads. So it becomes very easy to move the blade very small increments with those screw threads. Um, in a wooden plane, you need to use a mallet and tap the blade, tap the wedge, um, tap the plane body itself in order to move that iron in the direction that you want it to. 
Now, it may seem faster to use the mechanisms in a, in a metal plane, but in actuality, as you as you get more proficient with wooden planes, um, you will get to the point where making adjustments in wooden planes are just as fast and just as precise as they are in metal planes. But it does take a little bit of practice to get there to be able to adjust them that fast. You you need to spend a little bit of time with your wooden planes and uh, and become familiar with you know how hard to tap them and where to tap them in order to make the adjustments you want to make. Um, so when you're first starting and first learning to use wooden hand planes, that process may seem a little frustrating at first, but stick with it because as you gain some experience with them and and become more comfortable with those planes, you'll find that tapping and, and adjusting with a, a little wooden mallet is going to be just as fast as using the mechanical adjusters on your iron planes. The one advantage that the iron planes do have over wooden planes in this situation, though, is the ability to adjust the depth of cut on the fly. Um, and I will often do this when I'm first setting the plane, you know, as I'm using it. Uh, if I don't like the way it's cutting, I can back the iron off or I can um, make the cut a little bit deeper just by reaching my middle finger out and giving that uh, adjusting wheel a little twist while I'm using the plane. So there's no need to really stop. I can do it mid-cut. Um, you can't really do that with wooden planes, um, but that's really a minor advantage in my opinion. So what about the differences in blades? Well, we'll start with the uh, the Bailey-style planes, and typically these blades are parallel, meaning they don't taper from one edge to another. Um, and they're typically pretty thin. Um, the, the planes, the blades in the newer planes are starting to be a little bit thicker. They're usually about an eighth of an inch thick, which is a nice thickness for those planes. Um, but the stock blades tend to be a little bit th on the thin side in the, uh, in the, the old Stanley style planes. Uh, not really that big of a deal. If your um, plane is tuned up well, even with a thin blade, you really shouldn't see uh, any significant flex that's going to impact uh, the cut. So it really just comes down to how well you tune that plane. The older style uh, wooden planes, traditional wooden planes, are quite usually quite thick. And in fact, not only are they quite thick, they taper from the cutting edge, the uh, which is where they are thickest, to the back side of the blade or top of the blade, which is where they are thinnest. Uh, this has the advantage that you can use less wedging pressure um, because since the blade gets thicker as it gets closer to the, the cutting edge, it has less tendency to want to drift backwards. Um, so you don't have to wedge that iron down so tight as you might with a, a parallel iron. Though in most cases, if you're using a chip breaker, uh, even on a parallel iron, that adds a little bit of taper um, so they tend to lock themselves in pretty good as well. But um, I have noticed with the parallel iron planes, wooden planes that I've used, and uh, the tapered planes that I've used, um, I can set the wedge on the tapered iron planes just a little bit lighter and have fewer issues with um, the depth of cut changing on me when I don't want it, you know, essentially the iron slipping. Now, Japanese planes, the taper is exactly the opposite. Um, the cutting edge is the thinnest part of the blade, though it's not thin in terms of, of uh, you know, in re in, with respect to, say, uh, the thinness of a Bailey-style plane. The, the cutting edge in a Japanese iron is still quite thick, but it tapers to an even thicker section at the back. 
So the, the wedge shape is the opposite that of a traditional Western wooden plane. And this allows Japanese planes to be used without a wedge. The iron itself is its own wedge. So it's a self wedging system. The wedge abutments in the iron body are actually cut to match the taper of the blade. And then as you drive the blade deeper into the plane, it wedges itself. So, you know, you need to set those planes up so that as you, you so essentially so that you can't wedge it too deep, because if you wedge it too deep, the cut ends up being too tight. So you need to tune those planes so that the wedge tightens up just where you want it to. The blade, I should say, um, wedges itself into position just where you want that depth of cut to be. Um, and my friend Wilbur will tell you that that job is not quite as difficult as it sounds or as it's made out to be. So, uh, and I can tell you as well, I, I've done it on a couple of Japanese planes myself, and it's really not that bad of a, a process to do. So, um, don't that, don't let that setup um, scare you. Um, it's really not that bad. What about the, uh, oh, so yeah, the lamination. So there, there's another thing besides the thickness. Um, modern blades are all tool steel. So it, they could be made out of numerous different steels, um, but they are typically solid steel. Japanese blades are laminated. So you have a soft iron or a soft steel body with a much harder tool steel cutting edge laminated to it. Traditional Western style planes were actually made the same way. There was a softer iron or steel body, and there was a very hard cutting steel laminated to it. And if there is an advantage um, to any of these tools, I would say that it is in the Japanese uh, irons and the old wooden plane irons and this laminated construction. The laminated construction definitely makes them faster to sharpen, especially when compared to newer steels, uh, like a two, um, you know, I have some a two steel blades and, uh, while they can be made plenty sharp enough for woodworking, um, they, you do feel a difference. They are quite a bit more abrasion resistant. Um, yes, they do stay sharp for quite a while. Um, but they, they tend to be a little bit slower to sharpen. Um, and to me, the old steel and the old Western style planes um, and the steel and the Japanese style planes to me just feels better when you're sharpening it. Um, they tend to sharpen up faster um, and, and maybe even a little keener than the, the modern steels. So um, I do think the old tools and the Japanese planes have an advantage there. Um, but again, it, it's only a slight advantage. And while I do feel that these blades are, are a bit of an advantage uh, or are a little bit better, in my opinion, uh, than the newer steels. Um, ultimately, the wood really doesn't know the difference. So as long as uh, you don't mind the, the few extra minutes that it might take to sharpen one of the, uh, the newer blades, um, it's really not going to make a difference to, to the wood itself. So what about the feel of these planes? Um, you know, one of the benefits that I find, especially more so today in my current shop, um, which is, is not climate controlled at all, is that wooden planes are not cold in the winter. Um, you know, if I pick up one of my, one of my iron bench planes out of my tool chest and, and use it on a really cold day, um, 
that cold transfers to your hands and and you know yes they do have a wooden wooden tote and knob but i'm often grabbing the metal parts of the plane itself um or if you're using you know something like a shoulder plane where there is no wood or my um my record 44 plow plane which does not have a wooden handle it's all metal um that metal is really really cold in the winter um wooden planes are they, they're still warm to the touch. Yes, the wood gets cold, but it's it's just a much warmer feel um, in cold weather. Wooden planes also tend to have less friction. So when you're using a wooden plane, that wood-on-wood wood feel um, tends to be smoother and faster and slicker. Because um, One, because they're lighter, but two, because there's just less friction between the two wooden surfaces. Um, the iron planes, they're going to be a little bit heavier, so there's more weight on, on the wood surface. Um, there's more friction between the iron and the wood, um, and it's just a, a different feel. It's just one of those uh, those tactile things that you have to experience for yourself to, to really understand. So, I mean, I recommend you try them both out and, and really see for yourself the difference because a lot of people will prefer the feel of using one one style of plane over the other. Me, I like using them all, so... Um, I can appreciate the difference, uh, their differences and the difference in feel between them and still enjoy using both different styles of planes. And then there's the, the whole push versus pull thing. Um, Ben mentions how, you know, the, the mouth location is different on Western planes and, um, Japanese planes where the, the mouth tends to be pushed towards the back of the plane on a Japanese plane where it's pushed more towards the front of the plane on a Western style plane. Um, really this has absolutely no bearing on the tool's ability to cut and, and plane wood to a nice smooth polished surface. It has much more to do with how the plane is used in a Western style plane. The majority of the force is behind the blade. So the sole, the area of the the plane behind the blade needs to be longer in order to give you more registration. The opposite end of the spectrum, Japanese style planes are pulled. So the sole in front of the blade needs to be much longer in order to give you that registration. If you've ever tried to push a Japanese style plane, you might find that it's a little bit more difficult than you imagine that it might be. It can be done, but it takes a little bit of balancing and a little bit of practice to do. Similarly, I pull my, um, my Western style planes all the time, but it takes a bit of a different grip. You, you really can't just grab the front of the plane and pull on it. You still need to put that little bit of pressure behind the blade, almost like you were pushing it, but from the other direction. Um, so it, it really just has to do with, with how the planes are primarily used, um, and where most of that force is going. Um, it really doesn't matter one way or another. You can push both styles, you can pull both styles, but the the reason that the sole is longer in the front of a Japanese plane and longer in the back of a Western style plane is because how of how the tools were designed to be used. Western style planes were designed to be pushed, so they give you lots of registration behind the blade where you're pushing, and Japanese style planes were designed to be pulled. So you get lots of registration in front of the blade where you're doing most of your pulling. 
But in terms of what the wood sees, again, makes no difference whatsoever. It really just comes down to what you get used to. And interestingly, um, I think you, you might see, if you look at the, read the article that I'll, that I'll, I'll post uh, that Wilbur and I wrote years ago on the, the, the differences or the similarities more so between Western and Japanese planes, um, I think you'll see that, that the length is, uh, there's quite an interesting, um, interesting story between the, uh, the lengths of the two different style planes. Now, how about maintenance of the two different styles? Um, as I mentioned earlier, the iron planes are going to require much less maintenance in terms of tuning. They're going to hold, you know, the, the soles are going to pretty much stay flat. The frogs are pretty much going to stay flat. Things aren't going to move all that much. Over time, iron planes may move and may need to be adjusted. But for the most part, they're going to stay pretty much as they are when you get them. Wooden planes are going to move regularly and need regular tuning and regular maintenance. So it's something just to be aware of when you're using them. If they start to feel weird or just aren't really doing what you think they should be doing, it might be time to check the sole of that plane and see if it needs retruing. Um, also, on the wooden plane side, you're going to have uh, not have to worry so much about rust. The bodies and the wedges of wooden planes are not going to have any trouble at all with rust. All you're going to have to do is worry about a little bit of rust on the blades. And if you wipe your blades down with some oil after you sharpen, or if you sharpen with oil stones and you can just wipe the whole blade off, um, and get that thin coat of oil on the blade, you really shouldn't have to worry about rust on your blades uh, much either. Iron planes, on the other hand, they are going to rust. No matter how good you are about keeping them in a tool chest or, or sealed up, if you don't clean them every so often, uh, they're going to rust. They get dusty. The dust settles in places that you can't really get it out of. Um, and wood is, is hygroscopic. It, it absorbs, absorbs water. Um, and it will hold moisture against those iron tools and it will create rust. So it is going to be necessary to completely disassemble that plane once in a while, take the frog off and get all the dust and shavings out of the little nooks and crannies of the plane and get everything out of there to prevent the plane from rusting in those spots that, uh, that the dust collects. Um, so you are going to have to worry about the body rusting on them. Uh, it doesn't require a lot of maintenance, but they are going to require a little bit more maintenance in that department than your wooden planes. So to answer pre-modern's question on, uh, on my story, I, I will tell you briefly. Um, essentially, when we moved from New Jersey uh, about th almost three years ago now, um, I had my tools and I set up my shop and I, I found a lot of problems with my, my wood planes moving, a lot more so than they did when I was in New Jersey. Um, I was in pretty much a climate-controlled shop there, uh, and I would only have to retune my planes maybe once or twice a year um, with the seasonal changes because they pretty much stayed pretty pretty well, uh, pretty stable throughout most of the year. When we moved into the mountains here, we have huge swings in humidity. We could have fog in the morning, and then it could be you know, 40% humidity in the afternoon. Um, and that's just in a single day. Um, weekly humidity swings can be 
you know, vastly different between the beginning and end of the week, um, as well as the seasonal seasonal changes in humidity. Um, so I was finding that I was adjusting my wooden planes a lot more often than I wanted to. Um, it wasn't that big of a deal. I, you know, it was really just a matter of reflattening soles and, and things along those lines, but it was happening more than I really wanted it to. So I decided just for my own sanity and, and just not wanting to retune these things all the time. I wasn't getting a lot of time in the shop. Um, and I found that because of that, I was having to tune the planes almost every time I was using them. And I was spending more time tuning planes than I was woodworking because I wasn't doing that much woodworking to begin with. So um, I decided that for the time being anyway, um, I would replace most of my wooden planes with iron planes. And that really meant my joinery planes um, and my bench planes, molding planes. You know, there's no way to, to do that. No way I'm giving up my hollows and rounds for something like a, a combination plane. It's just, I've used combination planes and I don't really care for them. So um, I'll stick with my, my dedicated molders, my hollows and rounds and, and things. So, um, but I did get rid of most of my wooden bench planes and joinery planes, um, and switched to iron planes for those to uh, at least save myself some of the tuning. Um, I have slowly built some wooden planes, wooden bench planes back into my collection now, um, because I like them so much and I just can't get away from them no matter how much I want to. But you know, at least at this point, I have, I kind of have duplicates now. I have my, my iron bench planes and I have a set of wooden bench planes. Um, and if I'm just going to be in the shop for a brief period of time and I don't really have time to, to tune up the wooden planes and then use them on top of that, you know, I know I can grab my iron planes and just get to work if I've only got a half an hour or something to be in here. Um, or, you know, if I've got a whole weekend to work, I can pull out my wooden planes, give them a quick flattening and tune up and, uh, and I can enjoy using those as well. So that's kind of my story behind that. And, uh, I'll, I'll talk about the chisels in, uh, in another podcast. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. My preferred method, of course, is for you to record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. This way, you don't have to just listen to me the whole time. Uh, You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. Again, so you don't have to listen to me the whole time. Uh, or you can just use the uh, contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt020. And there you'll find uh, links that I referred to in today's show. And you can also find links to find me, uh, to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Um, actually, I am... I'm going to be uh, working on the house again. I've been working on the log cabin quite a bit. So uh, if that's something you're interested in, definitely uh, give me a follow over on Instagram because I've been posting most of the progress on the log cabin over on my Instagram page. So uh, check that out over there if the log cabin progress progress is something that you're interested in. Uh, finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. 
and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again, everybody, for listening, and until next time, stay sharp.